Okay, Ephesians chapter 5 again, Ephesians chapter 5. And I always love hearing the Gilmores uh, sing. There's something about family, anybody in music knows this, they have the same timbre. So they have a, a very good blend. So they're probably going to have to go uh, big time. I think they've got to come up with a name. So I was just thinking here, maybe the Gilmore Four. Or we could just short it to Gil Four. Okay, but anyway, so it is. Uh, great job, guys. And uh, uh, it's, uh, it's good. Okay, so here we are uh, in a little bit of a journey here. Tomorrow, of course, we'll do our message that pastors asked me to preach every year on uh, kind of how we draw rules, why, etc., approaching that the right biblical way. So we'll do that tomorrow. But we're going to go to Ephesians chapter 5, and I want to go now on the, on the back side of the command, be filled with the Spirit. Now, one of the reasons I'm not dealing with the command there in 18, be filled with the Spirit, is because as the, as the year progresses, you will hear a lot of teaching on sanctification how to walk by faith, walking in the Spirit, uh, trusting God. And certainly verse 18 is the kind of concept that as time goes on, hopefully will become clearer and clearer. Uh, so we dealt with the atmosphere on the, yesterday, what is important, how to create an atmosphere once the Spirit of God is not grieved, and He is right there to teach you, turn the lights on. And I certainly hope that a young person, as uh, these days are progressing, you are opening your heart to let the teacher teach you. And He will teach you. He will turn on the lights. And I find this sometimes um, when I go back uh, to my college education, I think, well, you know, did I really hear that? And sometimes I realize that the chances are that maybe I did hear some things, but I was not in a place where the lights could be turned on. And uh, so I look back and think maybe I didn't hear it, but I, I think it's a good chance in some cases I did. So, um, so it's important to, to have that atmosphere, certainly so that God can speak to your heart. But now we're going to go to the back side, and we're going to look at five participles that come off the verb be filled. Five participles. Now, for those of you that take in Greek, know that you can use with participles, you want to determine a usage. Now, we all know that a usage is not like um, a, a tense or like a mood. In other words, you can look at a verb and say, oh, that's present tense. This is, you know, and then, so you have certain uh, amounts of ways the present tense can be used and a usage, etc. So usage is more, how do we say this, a little more of an opinion. Obviously, context bears in on it. And so sometimes people disagree on what the usage is because it's not dogmatic. It's kind of the approach. Now, as I've studied this, and I haven't done a lot of study of it, but as I have, there's basically two different views on what these participles are. They're either participles of means uh, or their participles of results is basic. Mostly the result would be, the, I think, the prevalent view of most Greek scholars that be filled with the Spirit, and this results in these five participles. And others say it would be means. In other words, these five participles are means that uh, fuel and encourage and help uh, in being filled with the Spirit. So you say, well, what's your view? And I, I guess my view is yes, okay? In other words, uh, I see elements of both in the sense that uh, when you're walking with God, walking by faith, certainly these five things begin to be a part of your life. But not only did that happen, these five things that enable you and help you walk by faith. Now, for instance, giving thanks. We're going to deal with that in just a moment. Number two, giving thanks. Now, I want to ask you a question. Can you be filled with the Spirit and be grumbling? No, it's impossible. So if you're filled with the Spirit, what's going to always happen is you'll be thankful. 
In fact, we heard that this morning, didn't we? Several testimonies. Boy, I'm so grateful God did this. Okay, that's what happens when God begins. We walk by faith. The Holy Spirit begins to work. We have a spirit of gratitude. And the moment we stop the gratitude is the moment, boom, we're, we're in trouble. We've walked, we stepped out of faith. So it's like this. Gratitude is a result of being filled, but gratitude all, all fuels being filled. Are you with me on this? You're seeing that it's part of faith. And so it is a result of faith. It's also a fuel for faith. And so it kind of keeps the thing going. So I see these five participles as somewhat means and somewhat result. And it's kind of like when we talked about this a few months ago when we dealt at the conference, dealt with that thermal. It's the same idea. Okay, so you're kind of, uh, one helps the other out. So let's just look at these five participles and uh, recognize that uh, as we're walking with God, these things are going to be a part of our walk and they're also going to fuel our walk and they're going to help us uh, walk by faith and to be filled with the Spirit and trust God and all of that. So let's begin. There's really three categories. I think we mostly know that verse number 19 is a verse that deals with music and it uses three of the participles. Uh, so we'll notice those real quickly. And uh, it says, Speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Now the word making melody is the word we get psalms from. Solo has the idea of plucking strings. And I believe this is a very good translation, but obviously some people, because of their view of music, don't like that translation. Uh, because that translation seems to indicate that a spiritual music will be dominated by a melody. But I do think that's actually what this, the verse is saying, but again, people will try to explain that away. But uh, notice it says, uh, I'm going to just point out one thing, there's a lot on this. I am not a music um, uh, expert by any means. Uh, obviously there's people here that can explain it far better than I, but as a preacher, I think as preachers we need to even delve in where we may not be experts and at least deal with what the Bible says. So that's what I'm going to endeavor to do. So notice what it says here. Be filled. So, so some people will say today, music is amoral, it's just not a big deal. And many young, even independent Baptists have said, hey, the music battle's over. In other words, people who are conservative in music have lost the battle, so just give up. Just forget about it. Well, my point is, I can't give up, because if it's tied to being filled with the Spirit, you can't give it up. Because if you give it up, you give up being filled with the Spirit. So it seems to me, it might be a really big deal. See, like I was saying for you returning students, I am afraid in the last decades, what independents and Baptists have done is we have divorced revival and evangelism. So we have evangelism, but we don't have revival. Because verse 18 is talking about revival. Okay, it's talking about when God shows up in your life, being filled with the Spirit, it's supernatural, it's God's fingerprints on your life, however you want to package it up. And it's right after that, three participles deal with music. Seems to me that must be pretty important. So I'm going to simply say that if you're living in revival, then it's going to result in verse 19. And verse 19 is going to help you continue to live in revival. So uh, whatever verse 19 is and whatever it means, it must be important. That's my point. Now again, some people may debate what it means, but I'm going to give you, try to walk you through this. Because sometimes in, the, in your culture, particularly millennials, and I'm not trying to throw you under the bus, I'm talking about your move, movement. Hopefully you are going counter culture on this thing, but many times millennials today, music's just not one of their issues. I mean, many of you grew up and you have, the pop sound is just how you grew up. I mean, how do I say this? I mean, most of you sing like you're trying to try out for Frozen. Okay, that's how you were, that's how you were taught to sing. Just because that's the music you heard, and it was pop, and so your, 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 your age group, 
doesn't even, doesn't even understand. Because, now, you hopefully do. I'm talking about broader because they've just been so immersed in it. They don't even see. So, as that has happened, you've got this into the church. And so, millennials many times today don't even, what's the big deal about music? What's the big deal about music? My point is, it's a big deal because it's tied to being filled with the Spirit. So, now, let's start what we did the other day. I don't know if you caught that. I went real fast on the deal, but I walked over to the piano and and uh, okay, here's, here's the C. And um, uh, I was talking to a young man recently, and he said that uh, he has heard several times preachers get up and hit the note and then say to the student body, was that note evil? And everybody laughs. And so basically his conclusion is, you see, music is amoral. Now, as I mentioned the other night, that is faulty reasoning. Building blocks are amoral, but the building blocks in any of the arts always build a moral statement. Now hopefully you understood the literature thing. Letters are amoral. But you start putting letters together and you make moral statements. You can make curse words. You can make pornography or literary pornography. You can do that, right? That makes a moral statement. There's nobody on planet Earth who would be a moron enough to say that literature is amoral. Nobody would say that. Why? Because it's obvious that it is moral. The building blocks are amoral, but the, they make statements. Same thing with art, as I mentioned, lines, curves, they're in and of themselves, they are amoral. You start putting them together, you make a statement, a moral statement. You can make a pornography, you can make other moral statements, moral and immoral statements. So we know the building blocks are amoral, but they make statements when you start putting them together. So it is with music. Why would music be any different? That middle C, uh, well, it may not have been middle C. I guess that's an octave lower. Am I right? All you perfect pitch people. Okay, but anyway, uh, that's, that's why when I was growing up, my little girls, you know, the, the, um, you know, the car door would be open, ding, 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 and one of my girls said, that's an A flat. I'm thinking, what? <laughs> and, uh, uh, you know, so you people, that, I should ask you, how many don't have perfect pitch? Okay, there you go. Okay, great. Okay, you're, you're the normal people in life. Okay, but, uh, uh, but anyway, my, my point is, um, yeah, okay, so we say, yeah, that note's, yeah, that note's uh, moral. But you start putting it together, you make moral statements. Now, it's like this, friends, like I'm talking about dual streams. Here's what your generation does. They'll see a young guy out here, he's got a thousand people in his church, he's been around five years, and all these new converts, and you say, whoa, how could that be wrong? Well, here's the point. The gospel isn't wrong. The gospel's powerful. And thank the Lord for his boldness to give the gospel and belief in the gospel. But that doesn't mean everything about that church has been, is right. There could be a dual stream, Right? Do you know you could have evangelism and not have revival? You could have a bunch of people getting saved, but they'll never reach that point where they will change culture. See, the problem today is, is we're not changing culture. That's because we believe, it. We're, we, how do I put this? We, in our, the American church is all about addition, but we, haven't even, we don't even comprehend multiplication. <laughs> See, so we'll add, we'll get a thousand, but that's all addition because they're not multiplying. It's dead-ended because they don't have revival. Oh, they'll see some saved, but it's all addition. It's no multiplication. So the point I'm saying is, okay, thank the Lord for souls getting saved, and even like we talked about Billy Graham, thank the Lord for everybody he got saved. But here's the point, is if things are going on in those ministries where people are getting saved, but something is happening that diminishes revival, then we got to say, okay, we embrace the evangelism, but we're going to deal with that which is squelching revival. You, you with me on this? It's just simple, simple. And so that's how we view things, even view our own lives, okay? And that's what we're trying to do now. We're trying to say, what is it that's hindering me from living in 24-7 revival? That's what we're trying to deal with, because that's where God wants us. 
So, um, so when you look at history and you see great movements, people getting saved, you have to understand the big picture. You could have somebody who's effective in evangelism and yet they've made tweaks and compromises or made some poor choices and so there's a stream in there that Satan has got a hold of and it diminishes the cultural impact. And uh, that's what's happened and it's what's happening in your generation. So my point is, whatever this means about music, it must be important because music is evidently a part of continuing revival. You cannot study revival history, particularly the more modern eras of revival, without being struck by the important role that music played. <laughs> and there were certain songs, like the love song there of the Welsh revival in 2004, which is a very critical song that kind of characterized some of the themes of the Welsh revival. And uh, we, we realized that God uses music, but notice the kind of music He uses. It says, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns, and here it is. Spiritual songs. Now let's use a little English. Could we do this? We're going to use it in English. What part of speech is spiritual? Help me out. It is a adjective. Okay. That's pretty good. Okay, great. Okay, Mrs. Shepherd would be thrilled. Okay, and some of your other teachers. Okay, uh, it's an adjective. Now what do adjectives do? You know, the truth is, you know what an adjective does? does? It narrows the definition. Okay, let's take a truck. Of course, You'd want a truck, right, Paul? You wouldn't want a car. But anyway, uh, your truck. Okay, so let's take a truck. If I said truck, you could think of all kinds of trucks. But then I say a Ford truck. Okay, now it's limited down. An F-350, now it's limited down. Dually, now it's limited down. Okay, okay how about uh, standard on the floor? You know, and now it's limited down. Okay, so the point is, 7.3 liter diesel, who'd want another motor? Okay, now it's limited down. Okay, so the point is, every adjective I add, the, 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 the truck narrows. So if I was telling you to go find my truck out on the parking lot, I would hopefully give you enough adjectives so you wouldn't be wondering which truck it was. Now, so what is the word spiritual doing? It's narrowing the definition. Now remember, when you narrow a definition, which simply means there must be, don't miss this, there has to be songs that aren't spiritual, right? If every song was spiritual, you wouldn't need the adjective. And you have to understand when you use adjectives, when, there is an, when you have an opposite, it, uh, actually the, the presence of the adjective is indicating that there's, generally there's an opposite. For instance, if I was preaching this morning, I would not say, hey, uh, give an illustration and talk about a cup of cold ice. You know why? There's no such thing as warm ice. All ice is cold. So I wouldn't use the adjective cold because there's no need to limit it. If I did, it would, it would logically confuse you because the presence of cold ice demands the existence of warm ice. You guys tracking with me? Some of you freshmen, I, I can tell your brains I'm moving at full speed here. Hard drive's about ready to crash. Okay. But anyway, you'll get used to thinking. I know that's a foreign concept. But anyway, we try to get you to think here. Okay. Now, how about this? If I talked about, hey, let's paint these walls light pastel. <laughs> light pastel demands the existence of what? Dark pastel. And you say, preacher, that doesn't exist. So you wouldn't say cold ice and you wouldn't say light pastel. You just say ice. And you just say pastel. So all I'm simply saying is songs is broader than the word spiritual. Now, we're just using just basic logic here, which means then, this is going to shock you, that spirit-filled people listen to spiritual music. Whoa! <laughs> I know that's what you came to BCM to learn. Unbelievable. Okay. 
But you know, spiritual songs demands the existence of the opposite, and the Bible tells us what the opposite is. So, I'm not going to do this, but in the next five minutes, let's say I asked you to get your Bible and look for the opposites of spiritual in the Bible. What would you find? And basically, you'd find the word flesh, carnal, or carnally. That's what you'd find, which is basically the same root word in the Greek, sarks, and fleshly is the idea carnally. So we understand that the opposite of spiritual is fleshly, which indicates something that everybody in this room needs to understand, and that is that there is the, the existence of fleshly music. Now you have to, you know, once you determine that music is not amoral, and that's kind of a double negative statement, once you determine that music is moral, it demands something of the believer. You know what it demands? Discernment. But if music is amoral, there's really no discernment other than the words. Because most your age will say, hey, the music doesn't really matter, it's just the words. Now the point is, I think we have a problem because this passage of Scripture indicates that spirit-filled people are all about spiritual music, which indicates, is there, a, uh, is there such a thing as a flesh-filled believer? And the answer is, yes. That's what Galatians 5 is dealing with. Say, so if there's an opposite of spirit-filled believers, flesh-filled, then the opposite of spiritual songs has to be fleshly songs. Now fleshly songs, you say, well, you know, preacher, you're kind of into the subjective. I don't know that we are. I remember years ago I had a principal at the Market Manor Baptist Church, and uh, he's just a real out there guy. His name was Walgamot. He was just, uh, had curly hair, and he was just, he was a lot of fun. But anyway, he had a little girl that looked like Shirley Temple, had the same curly hair. She's like personality plus, two years old, something like that. And one day he comes into chapel, and he uh, says, you know, something happened last night. He said, this was back in the days in the 70s. You guys have no clue about this, but it was back in the days of stereos. <laughs> I mean, big, huge stereos. And uh, so he said, yeah, I said, we were in the house, and he said, I turned on the stereo, and somebody had left it on a certain station. It was a, a radio station, probably an FM station, and it was a, a, evidently kind of a hard rock type of station. And, and he said, before I could turn the music off, he said, my little two-year-old danced a jig across the room that she had never danced before. Now what was he saying? He was simply saying this, the music caused her to move her body in a way she had never been trained to move her body. You know why? Because she's a blank slate. She just did what the music told her to do. So if you put on John Philip Sousa down here with, in the, with preschool kids, what's going to happen? What are they going to do? Yeah, nobody's going to train them to march. The music is telling them to march. That very uh, helps you understand that music is far more objective than you think it is. So fleshly music is simply that which elicits a fleshly response. The problem is with adults, you don't miss this, we get desensitized. Could you get desensitized to visual provocation? And the answer is, Ted Bundy, the night before he was executed, sat down with an interview with, in the uh, maximum, maximum, maximum security prison with uh, Dr. James Dobson, who at that time was with Focus on the Family. And they did an interview that was called Fatal Attraction, and it was aired on mainstream television, which was just a remarkable thing. Ted Bundy was a mass murderer, and um, he had gotten into pornography. That's what fueled it. And James Dobson, in the, in the Fatal Attraction, I remember this as a teenager watching that, James Dobson asked them this question, something about softcore pornography. And Bundy looked back at him and said, I can look at softcore pornography, and it does nothing to me. There is no provocation for anything. 
Now I want to ask you a question. What would you think about somebody who hears that and says, well, there must be nothing wrong with softcore pornography? Would that be the right conclusion from that interview? And the answer is, no, that's crazy, crazy. What was the problem with Ted Bundy? Here's the problem with Ted Bundy. He had looked at so much garbage and so much filth and so much provocation that he was absolutely desensitized to that which is clearly provocative. So the problem is he's saying, I'm in huge trouble. See, if you can become desensitized to visual sensuality, I believe you can come be de de desensitized to audio sensuality. You think that's a fair conclusion? So your generation is desensitized. You hear it everywhere. And particularly if your parents weren't careful, you have heard it everywhere. It's become so part of your hard drive, you don't even think about it. It's just part of this culture. So I'm simply saying, if you take a blank slate two-year-old, put them there and turn the music on, watch their body movements. Because their body movements will tell you, are they provocative, are they inappropriate, or are they okay? That seems kind of objective to me, right? <laughs> so the point is, you've got two issues when you're dealing with spiritual songs. The first is the opposite, and the opposite would be fleshly music. Now, I think we get all this. But you say, well, Richard, I don't know if the music's that fleshly, okay? Well, there's another distinction God makes in the Bible. This is not obvious. This is not opposites, but this is still a distinction. In the Bible, God says uh, that the sword of the Spirit, uh, or excuse me, the Word of God is quick and powerful, sharper than every, any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of? Oh, soul and spirit. <laughs> you know what that means? They're different. Now, the soul, the Bible says, can be wrong. Dearly beloved, um, uh, what's that? Uh, I'm trying to remember the, uh, there in 2 Peter 2, verse 11, uh, about fleshly lusts warring against, uh, anybody know? Soul. So certainly the soul can be, um, can be warred against uh, by uh, worldly lusts. Okay, we understand that. But the soul in and of itself is not necessarily wrong. But all I'm simply saying is the soul is not spiritual. Now you say, Preacher, what are you talking about? I'm just giving you food for thought. I am not going to answer every question. I just like you to think, okay? Like I said, something many of you have never done. But anyway, I just want you to think for a moment, and here it is. Okay, soullessness is this. It's like this. If you were to go to the average college and career age uh, group in the United States of America and independent Baptists, you will rarely hear, hear in a inspiration one old-fashioned hymn asked for. You know why? because they're into soulishness. You say, Preacher, what do you mean by that? They don't even realize it, but they are listening to music that releases dopamine. Now, please help me understand. I'll help, you, I'll help you try to help you understand this a little bit. And I'm no expert on this, but I've read a little bit. A few years ago, uh, Daniel Van Gelderen forwarded to me an uh, email that had been forwarded to him. It was from the Wall Street Journal, and it was on Adele, who's a British pop singer. Some of you, unfortunately, know a little bit about that. But anyway, Adele uh, had a song that was on the top of the charts for who knows how long, and the Wall Street Journal explained from a glandular perspective why it was number one. And so the Wall Street Journal says, okay, she uses this technique, she uses this technique, she uses this technique, and they say when she uses that technique, it releases dopamine and it causes emotions. In fact, Saturday Night Live, according to the article, did a spoof on that particular song. They had a little you know, cubicle area in a, uh, at a workplace, and they played that Adele song, and everybody had a big group hug and everybody was crying. 
and it was supposed to be funny, okay? Kind of like everybody knows the song makes you cry. Now, that is what we would call soulish music in the sense that I would call it, if I can say this, musical manipulation. <laughs> Movie theme music a lot of time is musical manipulation. Now, I am not saying that every bit of soulishness is wrong. I'm not saying that. I'm saying it's not spiritual. Now, fleshliness is always wrong. But soulishness, in other words, it affects your perimeter. So, in other words, young people will go to concerts, Christian concerts, or they'll go to these group sings, and they'll come out, and they'll have a lot of dopamine response, but they are no closer to God than when they walked in. But they think that what happened was a spiritual experience. Now, here's the danger. The danger is they have taken that which was soulish and interpreted as spiritual, which diminishes then the reality of the spiritual. It's like this. Everybody in this room, I hope, I know some of your freshmen may not be, I hope you've, there's been times where you can look back when God just showed up in your life. You were meeting with God. And all of a sudden, something, the spiritual dynamic became real. Not necessarily was any music. See, the spiritual starts in your spirit where, G, where God lives, where Jesus lives, where the Holy Spirit is. And it obviously can affect your, your soul. There's no doubt about it that the spirit affects the soul. But everything that touches the soul first many times does not touch the Spirit. So what's the Bible saying here? If you're filled with the Spirit, you're going to listen to what kind of music? Spiritual songs. It's music that is innately, deeply spiritual. Now, how many of you, I guess you wouldn't have to raise your hands, last night after hearing the truth of our victory over Satan presented, when you sang Jesus Exalted, there was something that happened in your spirit. And although that's a tremendous tune and a tremendously written song, I think we'd all say, singing those words with the music, which we believe was a, a very good vehicle of the truth, stirs you. I love that war from the throne, putting evil to flight. Man, I just love that. <laughs> because it's Bible. It starts in your spirit. It resonates. The Holy Spirit is like, amen, amen. I mean, He's heaven. He's getting happy. And I say that in a very reverential sense. And there's something happening in your spirit, and then it may affect your soul, but it starts in your, it's a deeply spiritual experience. So understand that music, there's two issues you've got to watch for. Most of you are going to be, oh, you're going to get this. You're going to get this. Oh, yeah, we're not going the fleshly route. But your generation is very susceptible to soulish music, which only moves the perimeter. And there is feel-good stuff, but it does not affect your life. Good My dad said this, it was such a weak Southern Baptist church, he said the thing that taught him theology, hang on, was the hymns. He got more out of the hymns than he got out of the preaching. Well, that's my point. It was spiritual. God was using the truth of those hymns and the music to not confuse him, but to speak to his spirit. Now, uh, I, I, I hope you, you get a little bit of an idea. I've used this analogy before. I've, I kind of hesitate to bring it up, but it's just... Um, Unfortunately, some of you can identify with this more. And I've used this illustration before, so for those who heard it, just pardon it. Okay, back in 1985, it was a Saturday afternoon. I was absolutely bored to tears, which would never happen now. But anyway, I was, not, I was just a kid just back from our, one of our first tours. And my sister-in-law, I think it was in junior high, maybe a freshman in high school, said, oh, Jim, I rented a, a video from the library. You've got to see it. I said, what is it? She said, Anna Green Gables. I said, never heard of it. Oh, she says, you got to see it. you just got to see it. So, you know, this is my sister-in-law. You know, I'm thinking, I, well, I don't want to, you know, okay. So I started watching it. Man, it wrote me in. I'm telling you, it wrote me in. I, I mean, 
I, I just all of a sudden, I mean, I'm all about Ann, you know. I'm pulling for Ann, you know. Marilla, man, I'm telling you, she is a big ogre, you know. Somebody needs to get on her case. Matthew, I loved Matthew. Oh, yeah. Just <laughs> fell in love with Matthew. I mean, it, I mean, it's the hooks going in deeper. I mean, I'm just loving this thing. And uh, then he buys Ann a dress. And I'm bawling like an idiot. I mean, just tears streaming on my face, you know. She hugs him. How many have watched Anna Green Gables? Okay, I knew it. You were laughing. I got you laughing. Okay, so don't. Okay, but here's the point. And uh, she hugs, you know, Matthew. I am just bawling. I'm just thinking, this is unbelievable. I'm just in. And Marilla starts coming around. I'm thinking, okay, get with it, lady. Okay, you know, and, and uh, you know, so things keeps going and going. And then Matthew dies. I'm telling you, I was a basket case. I mean, he can't die. No, he can't die. He's the, not let Marilla die, not Matthew, you know. I'm just, I'm just whatever. I'm into this thing. And I'm not saying it's the, it's not a perfect movie by any stretch of the imagination. In fact, I could probably preach a message on the wrong theology of Anna Green Gables. Okay, but that's not my point right now. Okay, so please, this is not a blanket endorsement. Don't go home and say, Dr. Jim says we have to watch Anna Green Gables. Don't do that, okay. That's not my point. It's 1985. I'm not in spiritual maturity yet. Okay, please understand okay but here's the point I uh, that music every time I hear that music if I go to a mall or I just you know sometimes I'm I just in that melancholy mood and I might you know I think I wonder let me see if that does what it used to do and I play a Annie Green Gables and you know what happens I'm just like <laughs> you know you go walking through the wall and then da, 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 or whatever you know and you're thinking and it all comes back you're thinking oh this is terrible <laughs> Now, this is going to shock you. Those were not spiritual experiences. That was soulishness. Now, I don't know that it's wrong in and of itself, because I identified. I wasn't walking out after Anna Green Gables and said, boy, that was a spiritual experience. No. And as far as I'm concerned, I mean, I cried, you know, at the big points. My sister-in-law cried for two hours. <laughs> I mean, she never stopped crying. Oh, isn't this wonderful? And we're done with the thing. She says, oh, isn't this wonderful? I'm thinking, you cried for two hours. <laughs> Why is it you girls can cry and think something's wonderful? I don't get that. I really don't get that, okay? But my point is simply this, okay? My point is, that is not spiritual. And again, not every message on there has got, it's got problems. Please understand, there's even the romantic view and everything is certainly not courtship, okay? We get that, okay? But here's the point I'm making. I only give the illustration, I gave the disclaimer, so you hope you understand where I'm coming from. But the point I'm making is that's what I believe is happening today. We have Anna Green Gables music in our singles, young adults ministries, and we think it's spiritual. Because it makes us cry. Well, you preach the texts are really good. Well, some of the texts aren't meant. They are really good. <laughs> and I'm grateful for the good texts. And if I'm in a church and I'm struggling with the music, I focus on the text and try to get a blessing out of the text. But I will tell you what moves me is not the music, because I feel manipulated with the music. What moves me is the texts. Sometimes I'm having to block the music out and focus on the text because I'm trying to get something out of it. When I'm in, I'm in all kinds of different situations, so you never know what we're going to hear. So here's the point, friends, and I've got to wind it down. I was going to preach on gratefulness and submission. We'll get to all that eventually. I'm not necessarily this time. Obviously, it's in the Bible. But here's my point, friends. When it comes to music, your generation needs to understand something. If you believe Ephesians chapter 5, you've got to make this statement. Music must be important. Whatever verse 19 means, and you may have to grapple with it, it's important. Why? Because it is grammatically tied. You can ask Dr. Paul. The, the, the participles are tied back to verse 18. 
So verse 18, whatever it means, being filled with the Spirit, verse 19, is not only a result of it, but it's a catalyst to keep it going. That's why I'm very grieved about this generation, because I believe that their music could be that which causes them to hit a ceiling and hinder the full manifestation of revival in hearts and lives. Now, I'm not talking again. It's like this, friends. We recognize on an issue like this, there's a lot of good people out there that just don't see it. I get that. And I think it's very, care, very important that we have a spirit-filled attitude and a compassionate attitude and loving attitude. And we, we ask God to help us navigate things. And it's not easy to always navigate things. I'm in situations I have to navigate stuff all the time. Any of you who've traveled with me understand the challenge of navigating it. And it's not always easy. And I'm not saying every time I've navigated it perfectly. But the point I'm making right now is that in your own heart, you've got to say, you know, music is important. I can't fall into the spirit of cultural Christianity, which is now diminishing the issue of music. Now, fortunately, you're in a situation, some of you in hymnology with uh, Dr. Gingrey, uh, I encourage you to talk to him. You'll have Daniel Van, talk to him. Work through these things, because evidently they're important. In fact, we have our very own, for the next two weeks, Dr. Phil, okay? So you can go to Dr. Phil, okay? And he can help you with your psychological music problems, okay? But anyway... Uh, but the point, seriously, on a serious note, is um, that's what college is all about. So asking God to help you have a very compassionate, very gracious, but a very firm commitment. When I go into church and I don't quite see the music, I try to be very careful not to be critical, not to be, not to be um, uh, condescending. But I, I do in my own heart, it often makes my position firmer. It doesn't cause me to be looser, it causes me to be firmer. And I'm thinking, you know, these are good people but I, I think this isn't helping them. And again, I have to have, we have to have a good spirit. If you get condescending, you get critical, you get caustic, you know, that doesn't help the whole situation. If you're spirit-filled, you're not going to be that way. You're going to have a, a gracious, but a yet a, a burdened and perhaps even a grieving heart. And it will more firm you up on the fact that this is important and how you draw lines. And, and this message is not on how and draw lines. That would take me another half hour to deal with the shades, if I could say that, of dealing with this particular issue. Because, let's just say it, we are far more dogmatic on fleshly music than we are on soulish, because that's a little more challenging, but yet it seems to be indicated in the Bible there is a difference and it is important. So when it comes to being filled with the Spirit, there is that which sets the table, and then there is that which is a result, and which continues to set the table. So let me encourage you to think about that. Let's pray. Now, Lord, we do thank you for your word. Thank you for these young people. And Lord, help them as they, in their school right now, they've got mentors to help them work through these. And these aren't always easy issues, Lord. And uh, some of them have music in the past that they'll have to come to a conclusion was uh, music that maybe wasn't the worst music, but uh, it, was, it was more manipulative than it was really spiritual. And as they grow in the Lord and begin to encounter a walk with God, uh, hopefully we trust that things will become clear uh, between the spirit and the soul. Uh, the word of God will help them divide asunder, soul and spirit, so they can see the difference uh, and see what genuine genuine spirituality is and not make soulishness a substitute for the genuine spiritual. Now, Lord, I don't know how much they caught, but I pray you'd help them to catch some and we'll ask it in your name. Now, heads are bound and eyes are closed. I'm not going to have a come forward invitation, but I would like to ask this. How many would say, you know, preacher, preacher, then as we've looked over verse 19, it has made me think and maybe think about things I haven't really thought about before. And by the grace of God, I do want to ask the Holy Spirit to help me navigate this and apply it to my life so I can really be a Christian who is living uh, in verse 18 and 19. Would you just lift your hand if God's done that in your heart? Man, that's great. You can put your hands down. Pastor.